Genesis chapter 8. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. And the fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters were abated, and the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. And it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent forth a raven, which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. Also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand, and took her, and pulled her in unto him into the ark. And he stayed yet other seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came in to him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. And he stayed yet other seven days, and sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him any more. And it came to pass, in the six hundredth and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the seven and twentieth day of the month, was the earth dried. And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons, and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth, and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth, and his sons, and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds, went forth out of the ark. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast, and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night, shall not cease. Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. Let's look at the previous chapter, verse 17. It says, The flood was on the earth forty days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth. The ark moved about on the surface of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed fifteen cubits upward. The mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. 
verse 24, the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So we have a huge flood. Did water really get that high? Well, let me ask you a question. Why does the summit of Mount Everest have evidence of sea life? Why are there marine life fossils up there? This place was covered with water. Where did all that water come from? Well, we learned that the earth on the second day of creation was given a firmament that divided water from water. So there was water underneath the firmament, our atmosphere. The earth's surface has water, and there was water above the firmament, which would create a barrier between the earth and the sun, which would make the planet a semi-tropical place with denser air, like a hyperbaric chamber, protected from harmful sun rays, which would allow things to live longer, grow bigger, and uh, be more fruitful. And so when the flood came for 40 days and 40 nights, it rained. And uh, ever since the flood, Earth has been different. We've had four seasons. Uh, we have to be careful with getting sunburned. We don't live as long. Also, there was the fountains of the deep that opened up. And water not only came from the sky, but came out of the earth. Is there that kind of water in the earth? Well, science has discovered 400 miles below us is a layer of water trapped in rock that's three times the size of our oceans. And speaking of our oceans, they are huge. Check this out. Just how deep does the ocean go? If you took the highest point on land and submerged it, you would still have more than a mile between you and the deepest point in the oceans. The oceans harbor 99% of all living space on Earth. For scale, here's a human, and here's a blue whale, the largest animal on Earth. Blue whales usually hunt at depths of around 330 feet within the well-lit zone of the ocean. Deeper down, at 700 feet, the USS Triton became the first submarine to circumnavigate the Earth in 1960. At 831 feet, we reached the deepest free dive in recorded history. Down here, the pressure is 26 times greater than at the surface, which would crush most human lungs. But whales manage it, diving to a max depth of 1,640 feet where they hunt giant squid. At 2,400 feet, we reach the danger zone for modern nuclear attack submarines. Any deeper, and the submarine's hull would implode. 2,722 feet down is where the tip of the world's tallest building, the Burj Khalifa, would reach. A little farther, at 3,280 feet, we're deep enough that sunlight can't reach us. We've now entered the midnight zone. Many animals down here can't see, like these eyeless shrimp at 7,500 feet who thrive near scalding, hot underwater volcanoes. At this depth, temperatures are just a few degrees above freezing, but the waters around hydrothermal vents can heat up to 800 degrees Fahrenheit. 9,816 feet is the deepest any mammal has been recorded swimming, the Cuvier-beaked whale. But not even the Cuvier-beaked whale could explore the RMS Titanic, which rests at a staggering depth of 12,500 feet. 
The pressure is now 378 times greater than at the surface. Yet, you can still find sea life, like the fangtooth, hagfish, and dumbo octopus, the deepest living octopus on Earth. At 20,000 feet is the Hadal Zone, an area designated for the ocean's deepest trenches, like the Mariana Trench. If you tipped Mount Everest into the Mariana Trench, its summit would reach down to 29,029 feet. That still doesn't compare to the two deepest crewed missions in history. In 2012, director James Cameron descended to 35,756 feet for the Deep Sea Challenger mission. But Cameron didn't quite break the record, which was set by oceanographer Jacques Picard and Lieutenant Don Walsh in 1960. Picard and Walsh descended to the lowest point on Earth, Challenger Deep, at a record 35,797 feet below the surface. Since then, scientists have sent half a dozen unmanned submersibles to explore Challenger Deep, including Keiko, which collected over 350 species off the seafloor between 1995 and 2003. But scientists estimate there are potentially thousands of marine species we have yet to discover. Humans have explored an estimated 5 to 10% of Earth's oceans. We've only just begun to understand the deep, dark world that flows beneath us. That's a lot of water. So now the question isn't where did the water come from? The question is where did the water go? Well, in opening the fountains of the deep, God would have caused earthquakes, earth shifts, tech, you know, plate shifts, uh, fountains opening up, springs, geysers, and volcanoes, and reconfiguring the crust of the earth. You'll see today that this is actually the recreation of the earth that parallels the first day of creation in an amazing way. And so, <clears throat> where we stand today, out here on this land, are seashells. Science talks about the great death. Just Google the great death. They have all kinds of theories, but there's just proof all over the world that things died by the, un, by the countless numbers. We believe, according to the scriptures, it was the great flood. All right. Have you found chapter 8 yet? <laughs> then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. That's an awesome verse. God remembered Noah. When he remembered him, he was mindful of him. It wasn't that he forgot him, but he remembered him in extending kindness towards him. You know, when you um, send flowers to a funeral, you do it in remembrance of the deceased. You extend your love to those who are grieving. I never really grasped the significance of flowers at funerals just... I uh, thought it was sentimental beauty, you know, nice, awesome, good smell. But when my mother passed and I would look at those flowers and read who they were from, they were like hugs from afar. Now I understand. Someone that I had not had in mind had me in mind, remembered my grief. So God remembered Noah. And God, because he remembered him, in remembering him, he made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. The word there for wind is the same word for spirit, ruach. God made a ruach to pass 
over the earth. And the Ruach caused the waters to subside. When the children of Israel walked across the Red Sea on dry land, the wind blew, a Ruach blew all night long. So I believe this is the operation of the Spirit of God blowing through nature. He sustains everything, right? Even when we don't see it, you're working. You never stop, never stop working. So he sustains things by the word of his power. He is a spirit. So the operation of God is a spirit manifest in wind. Uh, on the day of Pentecost, there was the sound of a rushing mighty wind. So here we see the wind reminds me of the spirit hovering over the waters on the first day of creation. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. So, until the earth dried up, there was no more rain for a while. I'm sure they were glad about that. The waters receded continually from the earth. In the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. So, there were seven days in the ark, then 40 days of rain, and then 150 days. How long were they in that thing? A long time, over a year. You reckon the fowls became foul? How about, how about the human company? Imagine having Christmas on a boat all year long. The kids would love it, but there's no kids yet. Grown-ups. It was tough. This was, this was incredible faith. At the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. The ark rested on the seventh month of the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat is in Turkey, and the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Why does it relate the month and the day and the number of days? Because this happened. This isn't just some myth, once upon a time, in the sweet by and by, this happened, and then this happened. No, he's, they're giving the delineation of things that happened as they did on the date they happened. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out a raven, and it kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. So the raven never came back. And, of course, they eat carrion. They eat dead flesh. So they just found plenty. He found plenty of things to, to, you know, to eat from floating around. You say, nasty. Verse 8, same day, he also sent out from himself a dove, to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. And she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. Now remember, this ark has one door, one window. You can't see. This what sunlight comes through the window, so depending on the operation of these birds which is not a foreign concept. Ancient sailors have used birds. I read a story yesterday of some Danish sailors, maybe they were Vikings, that had captured some crows in the British Isles to help them find their way to the Shetland Islands. And on their way there, they released the first crow and it flew back to where they came from. So that, that was too soon. And then as they sailed on a while longer, they released the second crow, 
and he eventually came back. Okay, we're not anywhere close. And then later on, when they released the third crow, they followed him as best they could, the direction he had till he disappeared. They knew, okay, he found land. We're going somewhere. Sailors for centuries have noticed the migration of birds. They would follow them. Even when you're close to land, you'd notice seagulls and pelicans and all those things. Anyway. So he put out his hand, took her into the ark to himself. Verse 10, he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive tree, olive leaf was in her mouth, and no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So the dove was gone all day having fun, and then came back with proof of life. Olive trees are very hardy. They're not easily killed. And uh, this, this was a tree, no doubt, that it began to sprout instantly or maybe it was even sprouting some while it was submerged. This is a symbol of peace around the world, a dove with an olive leaf. I wonder why. Could it be because this story happened and every culture relates to it? And over 350 cultures are recorded as having the flood story. When he came back with a leaf in his mouth, you reckon there came some peace with that? Peace of mind, at least. Verse 12, so he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not yet return to him again. So did they jump out of the ark then? Nope, they waited on God. And it came to pass, verse 13, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month that the waters were dried up from the earth and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. Indeed, the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Can you imagine that day? Sunlight. Fresh air, yes. <laughs> Somebody needs to invent some fans in this place. Finally, God gives them clearance. Verse 15, then God spoke to Noah, saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps, all the creeps in the ark, on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. According to their families. So you reckon the rabbits were multiplying? Remember the comedian that said Noah told the rabbits, only two, only two. Then Noah worshipped, verse 20, then Noah built an ark to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night, shall not cease. So Earth's history had day and night, but not all these seasons. And so he's not going to destroy the earth 
like he has done, as I have done, every living thing as I have done, while the earth remains, the seasons will continue. So one day the earth isn't going to remain. Uh, before we get into that, let's just look at the faith of Noah. Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet. So the unseen, he had faith in because of God's word. Moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. God told him, build yourself an ark. Could he have told other people he could have? Did they obey it? No. What was God doing? What was he thinking? Is this genocide, as some atheists would say? Well, speaking of atheists, one of their protests against the existence of God is all the wickedness that's in the world. The debauchery, the evil, the murder, the raping, the pillaging, the thievery, the suffering, the abuse. If there's a God, this wouldn't be going on. Well, we're not a planet of robots. And God is not a deist, a deistic type God where he turns us loose, let us do what we want. No, he doesn't like that stuff either. So he does judge, but he's long-suffering and loving, not wanting anyone to perish, giving man a space of time to repent. The 75-plus years it took to build this huge boat was enough time for people to consider the destiny of their soul. Psalm 34 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So God is merciful, right? But his face is against evildoers, and he will eventually cut, them, cut their memory off from the earth. Do we know the names of those people? Only what the Bible shares with us. Gone. When God turns the lights out, it's done. Well, I still think that's genocide. Well, it's the ending of wickedness beyond belief. The people in that day lived for centuries. Can you imagine El Chapo never dying? 500 years old, how much wickedness he could develop how big the cartels could get, human government would be impossible. So God's mercy. Why do people go see movies where the bad guy gets what's coming to him? Why? Because there's a cry in the human heart for justice. See, the good guys win and the bad guys go down. Well, God made us, right? So when he gets moving, he warns first those who do not believe his warning will suffer consequences. He's God and we are not. Any potters in the house? While you're working with that clay, does the clay talk to you? I don't want to be a bowl. I want to be an ashtray. No, you don't. You're the potter. So how dare we as arrogant human beings accuse God of some crime? I'd like to speak to you today on the subject, the gospel's threefold witness. 
So the verse I'm going to share is controversial in that it is not in all the old manuscripts, but it's in, it's in some. And I share it because I believe it is the truth. 1 John 5, 7 and 8 says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Can we say one? And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Can we say three? So we have Father, Word, Holy Spirit. We have Spirit, water, and blood. So heaven's witness is the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. They are God. They have always been. They are one. And they are revealed in Scripture. He is revealed in Scripture. We see in the first day of creation, all three revealed. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heaven and the earth. That's creator. That's father. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit, the ruach, the wind of God, the Holy Spirit of God, moved upon the face of the waters. So there's Holy Ghost. See that? And God said, there's the word. Let there be light, and there was light. Psalm 119 reveals to us that the entrance of God's word brings light. His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our pathway. So we can see in the dark, we can see into the future through God's word, the written word, but the holy word he could put in our heart from the Holy Spirit that doesn't violate the written word could show us the right decision to make when we need. So can we say Father, Word, and Spirit? Okay, we see this in Genesis 8, here at the recreation. God remembered Noah. There's there's the father, remembering his son. And all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind, there's the spirit, ruach, over the earth, and the waters receded. Whether it was his spirit moving the water, or his spirit blowing, or just a wind created because the Spirit told him to or the Word told him to isn't the point. The metaphor for Spirit is wind. So there's Father and Spirit. And then at the end of the chapter, Noah builds an altar to the Lord, takes some of the clean animals and clean birds. He sacrificed burnt offerings from it, on it. What is he doing? Isn't he going to wipe out a species two by two, remember? No, remember there was seven pairs of each of the sacrificable animals. Got to go back in the story. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. You reckon he likes barbecue? And said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man. So the Lord smells and speaks. There's the word. So we have the Father, the Spirit, and the word. And what does the word say? Let there be light? No, there already was light. It says, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. You know, all babies are natural-born narcissists. (laughs) Not my child. Well, let your child get a little older. Parenting is dealing with that narcissism. It just is, helping correct them. 
Proverbs says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. What is the rod of correction? It's an instrument of punishment. We'll drive the foolishness out. We read this verse to our children one day and had a Valentine's heart. You know, the candy comes in, took the lid off of it, and took a big piece of paper, wrote the word foolishness on it, wadded it up, and crammed it in that heart where it fit. Told our kids, foolishness is bound up in your hearts. But the rod of correction, we took Mr. Flyswatter, swatted that thing, and that paper flew across the room. Like the Lord helped us communicate a message. Our eyes got big. Said, our job is to get the foolishness away from you. So we are born in sin, shaping in iniquity, yet God loves us. He's not going to curse the ground anymore, even though we're evil from childhood. And he'll never again destroy all living creatures as I have done. Notice, as I have done. Not going to be with the flood anymore, the whole earth. One day it will be fire. Remember the spiritual the slaves used to sing? God gave Noah the rainbow sign. No more water, but fire next time. It makes me tremble a little bit to see how the rainbow is being used in our day and time. To celebrate debauchery, the opposite of what it is about. Judgment's coming, not with water, but with fire. All right, back to the sermon. Earth's witnesses are the spirit, the water, and the blood. Three things. Are they in this story? Well, we see the wind over the earth and the waters receding. So there's spirit, water, and Noah offering this sacrifice. There is blood. Spirit, water, and blood. This is involved in our redemption. Jesus shed his blood on the cross, and even water from his body poured out of his side when they lanced it. Blood and water. He dies, gives up the ghost. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. They lance his side, and water comes out. So blood and water for our redemption. And then his spirit reveals to us the truth of the gospel, causes saving faith to dawn in our hearts makes us believers, gives us ears to hear the gospel, and the Spirit makes us part of his body. So blood, water, Spirit. We see this paralleled in uh, several places in the Bible, in, in other examples. The Israelite story and their deliverance from slavery. There's the Passover lamb. A blood was shed so that judgment would not come to your house, but it came to the houses where it wasn't shed. And the hearts of their oppressors were broken to the point they agreed for them to leave. So they were freed from slavery through the blood of an innocent lamb. And then they changed their mind, but their freedom was secured through the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 says that they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So they, they're going beneath the surface of the waters, but not getting wet. Remember, the waters are parted. What is leading them? 
the pillar of cloud in the daytime, the pillar of fire at night. This is the Spirit of God. The wind blew the waters apart and, and made the ground dry. So you have blood, water, and spirit involved in the deliverance of the Israelite slaves. In the ordination of Israelite priests, there's a sacrifice, blood is shed for the ordination of this priest. There's the washing of the priest with water. And then there's the anointing of the priest with oil, which is a picture of the Spirit of God. There's a baptism of Jesus Christ. When he's baptized by John the Baptist, he's standing in the water with his blood flowing in his veins that will one day, three plus years later, be shed for the sins of the world. So there's blood, right? He's standing in water, going to be baptized in it. There's water. John the Baptist baptizes him. He comes out of the water, and the Spirit comes upon him like a dove. Blood, water, Spirit. We have blood, water, Spirit in our baptism, or our baptisms. Depends on how you look at it. Ephesians Chapter 4 says there was one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. One baptism, and yet we have three baptisms, and yet they agree as one. They all work together. The most important one is baptism into the body of Christ, which is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, as I close. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. So the spirit baptizes us into the body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, bond or free, we've all been made to drink into one spirit. So there's one Holy Spirit and there's one body. So there's not a Gentile body of Christ and a Jewish body of Christ. We're all one body. The Spirit baptizes us into the body. Well, I don't remember that happening. Well, the act of convicting you of your sins and opening your eyes to the truth of the gospel as it relates to you personally, that's the operation of the Spirit. Well, someone was preaching, or I was watching TV, or I was reading a tract, or I was on my knees praying. However it happened, the Holy Spirit was at work because the blood was shed for you. Then also, there's baptism in water. You have the agencies in which you're baptized. The Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. Baptism in water, you have another believer that baptizes you. The requirement for these baptisms is that you be a believer. To baptize an unbeliever doesn't do anything but make them wet because water is not magic. You can even say the right formulas, and formulas are not magic. It's believer's baptism. So the element into which you're baptized as a believer is the body of Christ, and the baptizer is the Holy Spirit, and you're the believer, and the body of Christ is the is the element. In water baptism, it's water. You know, water's amazing. It's two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. That's a recipe for an explosion. Is it not? It's amazing. God, God just shows how awesome he is. So the baptizer is the believer baptizing you, the leader, the discipler, the pastor, whoever. And the water is the element and the baptizee is the believer. And then there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Who's, who's a candidate for that? The believer. What is the element you're baptized in? The Holy Spirit. 
So who does the baptizing? Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, where it first happened, Peter said, Jesus poured this out, which you now see in your life. He did. So there's three elements to the one baptism. In Acts chapter 8, they had become believers. They heard the gospel. They were baptized in water. Apostles from Jerusalem came and laid hands on them so that they can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, they heard the word and became believers and were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and then they were baptized in water. So the order is not a recipe. It's just these three things are important in our life. In Acts chapter 19, Paul met some believers who'd been baptized by John the Baptist, and they hadn't even heard of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So because they were believers, he baptized them again as believers in Jesus in his name, and laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And in that case, they spoke in tongues, and they prophesied. So these three things are so important for us as believers. It's revealed through the Scriptures. We saw just the beginning of this revelation in Genesis 8 with um, Noah's sacrifice, which is blood, and the Spirit of God moving upon the waters. Maybe you were baptized in the Holy Spirit 40 years ago, but have you been filled since then? Being filled with the Holy Spirit is something that we need daily as we follow Jesus. We need to daily seek to be filled with his Spirit. I don't know that I believe in all that. What you believe is not as important as who you're following. Are you following Jesus? Believe in him. Let your doctrines line up with him and ask him to fill you with his Spirit however he wants to do it. Now, as I close, this is my second closing, and this is it. If you're a believer and you have not been baptized in water since you've become a believer, maybe you were baptized as an unbeliever, maybe your parents did it for you, I don't want to argue with you, but I want to challenge you to pray. Lord, I'm a believer now, and I've not been baptized as a believer. Do you want me to be baptized? And I have seen countless people say, you know, Now that I'm a believer, I know the Lord wants me to do this. I challenge you to be baptized again or for the first time. It's humbling. It is an act of obedience to the Lord. Now back to where we were. My third closing's coming up. Man, I was loaded for bear today. People are upset at the flood call it genocide or whatever, but on the cross, Jesus received the next flood, the next judgment for sin came, and he received it in himself. Through many trespasses, talk about trespasses, abusing God's son, it's horrible, has brought blessing to us. The flood brought blessing to Noah's family. Listen to this. 1 Peter 3, verse 20, once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. How were they saved through water? I thought they were saved by the ark. They were saved through water when you look at it like this. They came back to a renewed planet. 
All the wicked cultures were washed away. So they were saved by the ark, and they were saved by water. The ark is a picture of the blood of Jesus, not just because it was wood and the cross was wood, but the word for pitch is kafar, which means to atone or to cover. It's used 70 other times in the Torah, referring to atoning that the blood does for us. So they were protected by the pitched wooden ark and saved also by the flood. We are protected and saved by the blood of Christ. But also, I believe there's a work done in the water. Not that we're saved by water baptism, but that we are separated from the world, the world of rebellion, by obeying the Lord, by going through an act of burying our past. If I'm speaking to you today, come talk to me after service, and let's schedule a time to baptize you in this room. If that scares you, we can go do it somewhere else anyway. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, go get them, tigers. God bless you. Thank you so much.